your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Peter Ferrara. He is a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute and served in the White House Office of Policy Development under Ronald Reagan. Peter, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Glad to be here. Now, you have a new book out, Power to the People, The New Road to Freedom and Prosperity for the Poor, Seniors, and Those Most in Need of the World's Best Health Care. What's the book about, and why did you write it? Well, the theme of the book is Positive Populist Pro-Growth Win-Win Entitlement Reform. So the book explains how to reform every major entitlement program, Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare, Medicaid, welfare. But after those reforms, seniors are better off, the poor are better off, and sick people get better health care than they can today under Medicare, Medicaid, and Obamacare. Most important for us is that the other side of the win-win is that after generations, federal spending as a percent of GDP is cut in half from where it would be otherwise. So this is actually a roadmap for cutting federal spending in half over a generation. So I want to talk about both the problems that you're answering and the solutions, but can you give us just a basic orientation of where you're coming from? What kind of framework do you use in thinking about political issues? Well, I mean, uh, I am looking for a way to win. I'm not looking for a way to shout into the wind. Uh, So... uh, you know, I'm I'm involved in this because I expect to find a path to victory, and so uh, that is the guiding light. So that is why I'm trying to change the the the, the theme and the approach to these entire reforms from let's cut off the poor, let's cut off the seniors, let's cut off the sick people, to um, to what I call structural reform. So what we need is not entitlement cuts, but entitlement reform, because far more can be accomplished in terms of reducing spending by structural reform, changing the way, the way the programs operate, than just by trying to cut and slash benefits. You're never going to get very far with that, but you can dramatically reduce government by changing the way these programs operate. Yeah, I want to come back to that issue, but first let's talk about some of the specific things. So first of all, can you give an overall summary of what challenges we face from entitlements, uh, and then we can delve into the specific programs after that? Well, the entitlements are exploding. They're taking over a bigger and bigger percentage of the budget. They're ultimately threatening to force everything else out or to fund or to create a massive explosion in federal spending. An important metric is that federal spending as a percent of GDP, many people did not know this, has actually since the end of World War II been stable. That's like 75 years ago by now. It's uh, from basically 1945-50 until today is uh, 65, 70 years. Uh, federal spending as a percent of GDP has been right around 20%, stable around 20% that whole time. Some years it's one or two points higher, some years it's one or two points lower. But after all, you would be surprised that after all the fights back and forth, the war on poverty, uh, the uh, Johnson administration, uh, the Reagan revolution in the other direction, and everything back and forth, federal spending as a percent of GDP has been held in check at, a, at around 20% of GDP. Uh, but on our current course, 
we can expect that actually to explode to like 40% of GDP over the next generation. With another 10 to 15% going to state government, government of America would be taking more than half of everything, which likely would be bigger than that because the denominator, the GDP, would probably decline sharply. So uh, 50% of GDP can become 70% of GDP if GDP is declining. And so that's the road that we're headed on. And so we need to fundamentally change that course. Well, that's something I think a lot of people challenge, particularly on the left. The argument is generally that with a few tweaks, say in Social Security, raising the cap on uh, Social Security taxes, we, with some tweaks, we can you know keep these programs going for you know several generations. So, why the need for any sort of radical reform or change? Balancing the Social Security budget is not a significant or worthy goal. That, that's not. You know, it's like the, the goal of, uh, well, yeah, we've got a plan for a balanced budget. It's 100% of GDP. You give us everything, we tell you what you what you get, what you can live on. And, hey, that's a balanced budget, so it's all good. Uh, so G- uh, Social Security is a very counterproductive program. Uh, it, it, uh, it's a very poor deal for working people. That's the most important aspect of Social Security. If you take the value of the benefits promised, the actual value of all the benefits promised, not just some of them, but all of them, Take the actual value, actuarial value and compare it to the taxes that are required. It actually promises a very low real rate of return. So, for most uh, uh, working people, it's actually less than one percent. So, for all your years of work and tax payment, even if Social Security can pay all the benefits it promises, you're going to get a real return, rate of return of less than one percent. So, standard long-term investment returns in in the capital markets. Are, are around 5%, real rate of return of 5%. The long-term stock market return over decades is around, real rate of return is around 7%. I mean, you compare a line growing at 5 to 7% to a line growing at less than 1%, and you're comparing a rocket ship to flat earth. And so, uh, uh, it, so it's a terrible deal, especially over a lifetime. And, uh, and, of course, that results because there's actually no saving and investment anywhere in Social Security. It's all taxes and redistribution. And the money's taken in, and then it's transferred to people this year. There's nothing to save and invest anywhere in Social Security. Even when there was a surplus in Social Security, that money wasn't saved and invested either. That was went to the federal government in return for IOUs, and that was spent also on everything from bridges to nowhere to foreign aid. And uh, so it's all taxes and redistribution. And so... As Einstein said, the most powerful force in the universe is actually compound interest. That's what they asked the father of atomic energy and atomic bomb. What's the most powerful force in the universe? He said compound interest. But you lose the value of the compound interest when you're relying on tax and redistribution rather than savings and investment. And so that's why it's such a lousy deal. And in addition, uh, um, because the program is going bankrupt, the rate of return is going to decline even further. So... For millions of people today, actually, they already get a negative real rate of return in Social Security. A negative real rate of return is like putting, depositing your money in the bank, and instead of the bank paying you interest, you're paying the bank interest all your money. And that's what Social Security is for many people. And on our current course, that's what Social Security is going to be for everybody, because whether you balance the long-term finances of a program by cutting spending or raising taxes, either way, you're reducing the rate of return of the program. So... Our current course, it's going to ultimately be negative for everybody. So it's a horrible deal, and there are enormous advantages to sh- to changing to a program of savings and investment. So uh, people with with uh, 
So one of the, there are three main concepts in the book, and one of the main concepts is the freedom for each worker to choose personal savings and investment insurance accounts instead of Social Security, pretty much like he did it in Chile to such great success over 30 years ago. And uh, so if you do that kind of reform, instead of seniors getting lower benefits, they get higher benefits. So if they save money uh, in the personal accounts over their lifetime, uh, they're going to get higher benefits than Social Security even promises, let alone what it can pay. Because you can't deny that a lifetime of savings and investment will always produce uh, more and better benefits than a lifetime of no savings and investment, which is what Social Security is. And so uh, seniors will get higher benefits, not lower benefits, and they each choose their own retirement age with a uh, personal account, uh, with market incentives to delay it as long as possible. Because the longer you delay it, the higher, uh, uh, you know, more you accumulate and the higher, uh, higher benefits would be. And from our perspective, you're not just trimming the growth of Social Security spending by doing this. You're transferring all of Social Security benefits spending off the federal budget altogether into the private sector. That alone is the biggest reduction in government spending in world history. Also, it's enormously pro-growth because you're producing huge ways of, ways of capital investment going into the economy. And so it replaces the payroll tax, which is the highest tax that most working people pay, with personal savings, investment, and insurance. So a personal family wealth engine, enormously beneficial. You hear people talk about uh, equality. Well, this will do far more to promote uh, economic equality than every idea that both uh, Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren have had over their entire lives put together. Because you're going to have working people all across America accumulating all these substantial funds in their own personal accounts. And uh, so instead of you would have far more equal uh, distribution of wealth, not by taking money from some people and giving it to others, not through redistribution, but, uh, but through the creation of new wealth, more but very universally owned and held. So uh, that is the best way to, to address uh, the issue of inequality or equality. Uh, it promotes massive equality. It's the biggest answer possible on the whole equality issue. So everything the Democrats will talk about are actually addressed far better through this uh, approach. So Democrats are talking about increasing Social Security uh, benefits, even while the program is uh, heading to bankruptcy. You know that just next year, the disability insurance is going to run out of money. Next year, it's going to run out of money. The entire program is slated to run out of money in about 15 years. That, that The day is getting closer and closer. When I first started talking about this, this is all in the next century. Now, it's 15 years away. And, uh, and so... Uh, uh, the Democrats are talking about increasing benefits, even in the face of that. Well, well, they should talk about increasing benefits, because what just Social Security promises you in return for your tax payments is pitiful. It's pitiful about. And so, but, but uh, what we're talking about here would uh, increase benefits far, far more than what these people, uh, ever, uh, what Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren, uh, have ever dreamed of uh, daring to ask for, because uh, this lifetime of savings investment, you could, the, you know, everybody would get higher benefits. And we're talking about two, three, and four times the benefits promised by Social Security by accumulating and compounding this money over your entire lifetime from the time you enter workforce uh, until you reach retirement. There are proposals to start this uh, savings program at birth. And, uh, uh, and uh, what a great boon that would be for the entire country. Enormous growth and, uh, and also uh, a country of... Uh, 
of uh, wealthy, high-income people uh, as a result. And also, it produces, creates jobs and increases wages for working people today because capital investment is the foundation of creating new jobs, and that's what creates the increased demand for labor that forces uh, wages uh, and incomes up. And so this whole talk about win-win, I mean, you can't think of anything, anybody from any perspective that doesn't win as a result of uh, this kind of reform. But, you know, the, uh, the biggest issue from our perspective is after a generation, these benefits are projected to total uh, by the Social Security actuaries, 10 percentage points of GDP. So you're taking 10 percentage points of GDP spending, in spending off the federal budget and into the private sector altogether. Again, the biggest reduction in government spending in world history. So this is why it's enormously appealing and why we need to do these reforms. And I think um, various versions of uh, reforming Social Security, uh, I think, are really well known. But I think less well known are the ideas that you offer for health care. And so I wanted to start with Obamacare. What do you consider the problem? And then can you give us a sketch of what you view as the solution? All right, so the third big idea in the uh, uh, reform plan, we skipped over the second one, but let's go to the third one here, which is repeal and replace Obamacare with free market patient power health care. Uh, all right, so the problem with Obamacare is that uh, it, 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 it transfers the health care system into complete government control, both the insurance market and the health care market. Doctors and hospitals, everybody are dom- dominated by government uh, under, uh, uh, under Obamacare. Uh, this is uh, raising costs, not lowering costs. And But we don't get universal coverage out of it, which was what we were supposed to get. So we don't even get, at this massive expense, trillions of dollars uh, over the years, CBO itself uh, uh, estimates that after 10 years under the program, you'll still have 30 million people uninsured uh, uh, under Obamacare. So you don't even get... Universal health care as a result of Obamacare. But you do get higher costs. You do get government control. Uh, you don't get to make the choices. The government decides what health care, health insurance you should have. And ultimately, yes, the government decides what health care you get. That's the whole point of this independent payment advisory board. So over, over, under their control over what doctors and hospitals are paid, they'll determine what you can get from doctors and hospitals because they're not going to give you something that the government's not going to pay for. Uh, and so um, uh, that's eventually you lose control over your health care as well. As well and you don't get to choose your health insurance. The, the uh, government chooses it for you. So the promise that Obama gave us, if you like your health care, you can keep, like your health plan, you can keep it. Actually, in practice, turned out to be if Obama likes your health plan, you can keep it. Because millions of Americans lost their health insurance that they were perfectly happy with for the price uh, because the insurance they had did not provide all benefits that are required by Obama's expensive benefit mandates and overregulation. So it, take, it takes choice away from people. It provides control over health care, and, uh, and it raises costs. So it's very uh, counterproductive. The foundation of a free market alternative to Obamacare is John Goodman's uh, proposal for a universal health insurance tax credit of $2,500 per person and $8,000 for a family of four. So this would replace all the tax credits in Obamacare. And effectively, effectively, this is, uh, uh, this is expanding the tax preference for employer-provided benefit to everybody. So everybody gets the same equal benefit. And, uh, 
it's just like the employer provi- tax preference for employer-provided benefits does not pay for the full cost of those employer-provided benefits. This tax credit is not meant to pay for all the cost of your health insurance. So some people on the left say, well, $2,500, what, what health insurance can you get for that? The point is the government and the taxpayer are not supposed to pay for everything. It's just, it just provides equal help to everybody. Uh, and then with that tax credit, that begins the process of decentralized personal choice because you go out in the market and you choose your own health insurance. The government doesn't. The problem with a mandate is you have to describe what health insurance satisfies the mandate. People can't say, yeah, I bought health insurance. It provides me with a vacation every year to uh, the Caribbean. And uh, so that's not health insurance. So once you have a mandate, individual mandate or employer mandate, saying you have to buy health insurance, the government has to tell you what health insurance satisfies that mandate. So the government then is choosing the health insurance rather than you. With this tax credit, you choose your own health insurance. You go out in the market, choose, choose what you want. You can choose health savings accounts, which is the ideal uh, uh, health insurance program. And the only proven means for, for reducing uh, the growth of health care costs. Uh, so you have the choice to choose that. Um, but this is the foundation of it. So you say, well, we're going to place all the tax credits in the law and care with this universal health insurance tax credit, $25 per person, 8000 for a family of four, which is basically what it costs to expand Medicaid to cover one additional person or one additional fa- family. Now, in addition to that, I advocated the second component of the uh, market system, is to block grant Medicaid back to the states. So you would give the states complete control over Medicaid. Federal financing would be provided to uh, uh, the state, continue to be provided to the states, uh, but it would be in a block grant that goes from the federal government to each state. Uh, and then uh, each state is free to choose how to reform Medicaid to best serve the people, the poor people in its state. But I advocate what uh, the states should do with that. That will be up to them. The federal government will tell them what they have to do. But uh, I can still advise them as to what they should do. My advice is for them to adopt a voucher system for poor people. That's tied to how much additional assistance does each person need to be able to afford a basic health insurance plan. So uh, you're focusing on the people who are truly in need, uh, people who need help to buy any health insurance, and you're able to adjust it you know, to the amount of income they have. So if someone has no income, you give them more than someone who has 15000 So. Everybody then would have the basic universal health insurance tax credit. Uh, the poor would have the universal health insurance tax credit as well. And then they'd have this Medicaid voucher on top of that tax credit, both of which they use to go buy anything they want, which would include health savings accounts. So people would be free to choose uh, health savings accounts to replace the Medicaid. And then a third component is I uh, would allow uh, the Medicaid block grant, some of the funds to be used for un- uninsurable risk pools or high-risk pools where uninsured people who remained uninsured despite the, uh, the assistance uh, and then contracted a costly illness like cancer or heart disease while they were uninsured, so they can't get then private health insurance, you could buy health insurance from the pool based uh, – uh, you could buy health insurance from the pool. So everybody would have a place to go, even, no matter how sick they, they became while they were uninsured. Try to insure people uh, – uh, so the left are the answer, and this is uh, – Guaranteed issue, yeah, you know, if you're going to sell insurance, you have to sell it to everybody who comes, and that's uh, at community rating, so it's at the same price. That's like saying people who sell fire insurance have to be able, have to be required to accept uh, customers uh, whose houses are already on fire when they call to buy the health, the fire insurance. And so, you know, obviously, you can't uh, run out fire insurance business. 
uh, insuring people whose houses are already in fire when they call to buy the insurance, especially if you're not going to charge them any more than anybody else. And similarly, you know, once you get some, an expensive illness like cancer or heart disease, you can't expect to buy health insurance in the market the first time, but it's only a small percentage of people who fall into that category on the order of around 1%. So, uh, so the best way to address this is with a, a, a special pool, a high-risk pool. If you go to the pool, you'd be charged some premiums for that based on your ability to pay because this is supposed to be a safety net program. And, uh, and then you, the, the uh, taxpayers would subsidize the difference. So, I mean, what the, uh, the, uh, the, the sick people who get this high-risk insurance, uh, what they pay will not be enough to cover all the expenses. And so the state would uh, subsidize the pool to make sure that everybody was able to get health care. And so uh, 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 through a system like this, well, I mean, the fourth component is what uh, is called guaranteed renewability. So uh, guaranteed renewability says once you buy health insurance, uh, as long as you continue to pay the premiums, then you're guaranteed that you can keep health insurance. Uh, the insurance companies cannot cut you off because you get sick while you're while you're insured. That's what the health insurance is insuring you against is getting sick. So it's a simple breach of contract, which is illegal under the common law. For uh, this is something Obama tried to take credit for, but has always been part of American law. And so for years, it was in the common law as a breach of contract for the health insurance companies to try to send you a letter saying, "Oh, we understand that you uh, were diagnosed with cancer." Oh, well. Uh, greetings. Uh, by the way, you've just been cut off from our health insurance plan. No, you can't do that. That's a breach of contract. You're insuring people's health with a health insurance plan, so you can't do that. And that was made federal law with the Kennedy Kasselbaum law in 1996. And so that was that was part of the common law. It was part of state health insurance regulation. It was federalized in 1996. And Obama comes along and he takes credit for it. So this is what we're doing with Obamacare. But so now you can see how everybody's covered on this plan. So if you have health insurance, uh, you can you can keep it. Uh, if everybody gets some assistance helping them to buy uh, health insurance, if you're poor, you get more assistance. If you're sick, you can go to the high risk pool. So every everybody has a plan, a way to somewhere to go to get health care. So assures if the plan assures essential health care for all, but with no individual mandate, no employer mandate, and trillions in reduced tax spending, and, and regu- regulation savings. And all of that is very pro-growth because it reduces the cost uh, uh, imposed on Obamacare, imposed on, on employment. And that's another problem of Obamacare in that uh, it's very anti-growth and it's causing, uh, it, caused, uh, it has caused extended high unemployment. It forces people out of the workforce. And it, it uh, raises costs uh, of, of employing people. Obviously, the employer mandate is a tax on employment, just like the aid of demand. It is effectively a tax on everybody. Even though Obama promised uh, there would be no uh, tax increase of people below the top three percent, that's what the aid of demand is a tax on everybody, uh, and that's effectively what the Supreme Court ruled. Which is why they said uh, it uh, uh, it was constitutional because the federal government is empowered to tax. Uh, but uh, so this is how you have a free market system. There's no individual mandate, no employer mandate. Uh, trillions introduced taxes, spending, and regulatory burdens, while it assures essential health care for all. And that's the way to replace Obamacare. And uh, uh, and so that's the, the free market replacement for Obamacare. 
So um, we don't have time to get into all of the uh, other solutions you propose, but I do want to ask you a question about um, what do you think that – why do you think these proposals are um, – and proposals like these are difficult to sell or to put it positively? How do you th- – what do you think the key is to making the case for solutions like this rather than solutions that expand the power of government? Well, I mean they are difficult to sell. You know, uh, the polls show that the most popular reform of Social Security was always uh, personal accounts for Social Security, freedom of choice to choose a personal savings and investment plan. And it even is the Democrats' own uh, base that strongly supports that. So it was African Americans, Hispanics, blue collar working people who saw this as the only means they're ever going to have to accumulate some uh, real personal assets and, and control over some real funds. You're having a uh, ownership spread uh, of American business and industry spread to every working person in the country. <laughs> and Hillary Clinton recently gave a speech about uh, her economics, and it strikes me how uh, everything she claimed before was actually achieved by these personal accounts for Social Security. So you get higher Social Security benefits, for example, you get uh, broader uh, wealth ownership, broader equality <laughs> as a result. And you get uh, working people actually owning shares in, the, in their own business and industry. Everything she said she was for is actually achieved by this program, not by her program. And uh, so it's not hard to sell. You, you have to try to sell it. So now George Bush ran on, uh, on, this, uh, on doing precisely this in the year 2000. And guess what? If he hadn't carried Florida, he would have never been president. So he did carry even Florida while he was proposing personal counsel social security. That's because it does nothing to hurt seniors at all. Seniors are left completely untouched uh, by uh, this reform. And uh, 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 But once he was elected, he never proposed a personal account plan. People say, oh, Bush tried that. Bush tried that and it failed. No, he did try it. That's why it failed. He never proposed it. I'm the one who got a bill introduced in Congress, uh, working with Paul Ryan, uh, at that time, was just a congressman in 2005, 2006, 2000, actually it was 2004, 2005, that we introduced that bill. That bill helped to launch uh, Paul Ryan's meteoric rise uh, because uh, he eventually expanded that into uh, uh, the Ryan Roadmap, which reformed everything very much like my book does. I contributed a lot to the Ryan Roadmap. And then that propelled him to become... Uh, chairman of the uh, House Budget Committee, and propelled him even to be on the, the the national ticket in 2012. That was one of the main reasons why Romney chose him, because he had worked so much on this entire reform, very similar to the ways I'm discussing here, in fact. And a lot of these ideas were embodied in the Ryan Roadmap, and to uh, Ryan's great success. And uh, all of that was scored by CBO. I mean, we had Ryan's bill and scored by the chief actuary of Social Security. And he said a number of very valuable things in his score, which is still posted on the Social Security Administration website at SSA.gov. One of the things he said is he assumed 100% of workers would choose the personal accounts because there's so obviously a better deal than Social Security. He said as a result of the, these personal accounts, the Social Security deficit would be eliminated entirely with no benefit cuts and no tax increases at all because it's done through the word we don't use when we talk about this, privatization. And that's how you uh, eliminate the long-term deficit. You're actually uh, shifting the program to the purposes of the program to be served by private capital markets, private free market uh, capital markets, which are far better achieving the goals 
and taxes and redistribution, which is all that Social Security is. Uh, and uh, so the chief actuary of Social Security actually scored Paul Ryan's bill. He actually he estimated that uh, after 15 years of these personal accounts, working people across America will have accumulated $7.8 trillion in these personal accounts. That's an enormous amount of money. Uh, after 25 years, it was $16 trillion. Uh, so you talk about uh, inequality and equality. Well, this is real equality. This is uh, the real answer. And everything else is uh, just political uh, posturing and uh, on the issue. This is a reality. And uh, uh, so this is another enormous benefit. So it's not hard to talk about these reforms. And, of course, repeal and replace Obamacare, running on that is, has led the Republicans to take over the entire Congress from the Democrats. So uh, it's not hard to talk about. And uh, patient power, it's, it can, this plan should be put in legislation. And the people across the country would say, the plan I outline would say, gee, that's much better than Obamacare. Achieve all that, which is choice and competition, freedom of choice and competition. And uh, uh, rather than bureaucracy, government control, mandates, dictates, overregulation, taxes, trillions in taxes and spending, uh, we can achieve all that with, without all that nonsense. And so uh, that would be vastly more popular. And the third component of these plans, that third big idea, is a welfare reform. And uh, so we could talk more about that as well. Um, well, it looks like we're running out of time, but how, how can people find out more about your work and where can they get the book? To get the book from the Heartland Institute, heartland.org. And uh, the book is a short book. It's only 140, 150 pages, uh, but it's a roadmap to uh, prosperity and smaller government, uh, freedom, prosperity, and smaller government. Uh, this is the way to make, if you want to make government smaller, this is the way to do it. I'm the only one who's ever come up with a a plan uh, that really that is concrete and that would work. It's not rhetorical fluff. I mean, you can write legislation right out of this book, and people have. People are right now writing legislation right out of this book in Congress, and some presidential candidates are uh, reading this book and becoming uh, familiar with its ideas. And uh, these ideas, I'm sure, are going to be part of the of the campaign next year. And so, uh, uh, get the book from Heartland.org. My guest today has been Peter Farrar. Peter, thanks for being part of the Debt Dialogues. All right, thank you. So I don't want to go too much into the specific proposals we talked about. Some I'm definitely inclined to agree with. Others I probably wouldn't support and some I'd want to know more about. But the main thing I want to stress is the importance of free market supporters developing specific plans and proposals. We should be debating the best way to liberate the economy, not simply saying no to what the left proposes. Now, I'm a champion of laissez-faire capitalism and obviously an uh, advocate for the abolition of the welfare state. But I do think there's a role, an important one, for policies that reduce the size of government but are more politically feasible in the short term. But what's most critical is to couple any halfway measures or steps in a freer direction with clear moral principles. We have to make it clear what we stand for in principle and defend steps in those directions on the ground that they move us in a morally right direction towards a real ideal. One thing we shouldn't do then, one thing we definitely shouldn't do, is to defend our concrete proposals by appealing to wrong moral principles, even if they're popular. 
So for instance, I definitely would not treat promoting economic equality as a selling point for any plan to reduce government. Because after all, if economic equality is a proper moral principle, if it's right for the government to seek to equalize people economically, then the free market is immoral and we shouldn't be trying to move in a free market direction. That said, I want to reiterate the value of coupling clear principle moral arguments in favor of a consistent political ideal with short-term policy proposals that could move us toward that ideal or at least save us from total disaster and buy us time to fight the battle of ideas. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.